that these provisions uh, go right through the chapter and into the next. What is said for the priest, more or less is repeated for all others in the community of faith. So we take a closer look at the first of these provisions, the forgiveness for the priest, and, and, and that will show us clearly the provision for the congregation, the provision for the individual, the provision for the church leader. If the anointed anointed priest sins, bearing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. That's stage one of five. Stage one, you have to bring. Stage one is about bringing. The priest realises he's sinned, so he brings a male calf from the herd, the best one he can find, and brings it to the entrance of the holy tent. Verse 4. Uh, 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 nothing, <laughs> nothing scrawny or diseased, thank you. I mean, how tempting might it be to go out to the, the flock and choose the one with a hobbled foot? Or to choose the lame one or the scrawny one? But no, 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 it's the best of the herd and there... He brings it to the Lord. He meets the Lord. There is a bringing. Then there's the slaughtering, the killing. He's to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of the meeting before the Lord. He's to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the Lord. Secondly, there's the killing. This is when it gets serious. He identifies himself with the bull. He places places his hand on the head and with all the symbolism of that, what that's that's doing, you place your hand on the the about to be slaughtered animal and you are saying that, that I should be lying there. I should be lying here. It's me who should be slaughtered. That's that's the symbolism. It's a symbolism of transfer into the innocence of that animal. And then the knife appears and the beast is slaughtered. There must be killing. And then, here's where it gets messy. After the killing, there is the sprinkling. Look at verses 5 to 7. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting and he is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. Then the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting and the rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar the burnt offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The blood of the animal is then sprinkled and splashed everywhere. It's all dripping and red. It's splashed at the curtain that guards the holy presence of God. It's it's spread onto the horns of the altar, which is the the symbolism of the horns. uh, That's the symbol for the strength and power of God, the blood's covering that. The very symbol of the power of God has blood on it. And then the rest is poured out over the altar. 
sprinkled and splashed. But the sinner isn't splashed. Splashing everywhere, even the curtains. Imagine having to clean those regularly from dry blood. Blood's everywhere. It's a liberal sprinkling of blood but not on the sinner. Not a drop on the sinner. The fourth part of the this, this event is the burning. The burning. Now, the fat that covers all the internal organs of the sacrificed animal along with the most exquisite, tender internal organs such as the, the kidneys are sort of scooped together and the flame attached and burnt as an offering. Verse 8. He shall remove the fat from the bull of the sin offering. The fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver which he will remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox, sacrificed as a fellowship offering, and then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. And it is that sweet aroma that is pleasing to God and he declares that atonement is made in the offering. There's the bringing, the killing, the sprinkling, the burning and finally, did you notice a fifth action? The fifth action is the removing, the rest of the beast. Where does that go? Did you notice that? Uh, the, 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 The blood sprinkled, the fats burnt, but all the all the rest of the beast is taken out. Look at verse 11. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh, as well as the head and the legs and the inner parts of the offal, is all the rest of the bull he must take outside the camp to a place that ceremonially clean, where the ashes are thrown and burn it in a wood fire on the ash heap. The symbolism, again, is that atonement extends to the uttermost, even to the outside of the camp where the remainder of the sacrifice is burnt. In the least expected place, in the least secure place, outside a city wall, God still makes peace outside a city wall. What's your impression? Do you feel this? Do you feel a little like not enjoying morning tea or just a little bit off. It, it, it's, it's meant to impress the bringing and the killing and the sprinkling and the burning and the removing, which is repeated all through chapter 4 and 5. This is some of the most powerful and precious teaching anywhere in Scripture. And we've summarised it in five words. But can you feel it? This is what happens in this tent of meeting is, is, is a sensory assault. We're sort of engorged all our senses. We're, we're seeing things we don't want to see. We don't want to see that knife come out and the, and the lifeless animal. We're hearing the last bleats and noises of a sacrificed animal. We're feeling, we're feeling his head as we touch our hands. We're smelling 
burnt fat. That never happens in my kitchen, but if you burnt fat in your kitchen, you get it. And there's so much of that burnt fat in your nostrils, it's actually going down and you're actually tasting it in the back of your mouth. Every sense has been engorged here. What is God doing? Why is this so awful? Why is sacrifice so awful? Why is it so involving all my being? This is disturbing me. Why is it so detailed? Why do we need to know about the, the kidneys and the offal and the fats and the flesh and the skin? Why is it so exhaustive? We recoil a bit, don't we? Or am I just the only one with these sensitivities? I'm a little disturbed, but I, I must, I'm drawn to it because these are the words of the Lord. So, before we leave, we could leave now. That's the end of the explanation of the passage. But what does it leave us with? What, what does this teach? The, first of all, what does this teach the Old Testament faithful? who are actually doing it. I'm trying to describe the, the scenes so that you're picturing yourself there. Are you nearly there? Are you, are you smelling it? Yes? Are you seeing it with your mind's eye? Are you hearing the bleats of the bull? Do bulls bleat? Whatever bulls do before they're killed. But, but that noise, are you hearing it? Can you taste the burnt fat at the back of your mouth? What's it reminding you of? Two great things. One, it reminds us of the gravity of sin. It is so grave. Sin is so momentous that it requires a life. Do you get it? Why the blood? Blood's the life force of that animal. And you, if you've seen the picture of a slaughtered animal, it's just flattened on the ground. It's got no life in it because the blood's drained. It's just a wilted heap flopped on the ground. And this is telling us something of the gravity, the seriousness of sin in our life. You would have to think that as an Old Testament faithful. This is so serious, so grave that God provides forgiveness only through death. Can you hear it saying sin is so grave that the sinner's life is in danger? You're sensing this as an Old Testament faithful watching what's going on at the tent of meeting and you're thinking, my God, what have I done? You're thinking, whoa, God is not safe. I tremble near God. And the only way round it is going to be costly. And I better get the detail right. That's the sort of impression we're left with. I better get the detail right. I've got to be in the right sacrifice to the right place to the right priest. I've got to do it in the right way. We've got to burn this and take this carcass out in a certain it's costly. And it's reminding us that sin has a cost, doesn't it? 
Now I've got more to say but I do want to pause on this. I don't want to rush and make you feel better just yet. I want to stay here just for a little moment because this is telling us, the Word of God is telling us that, that sin is difficult to, to deal with. It involves bringing and killing and splashing and burning and it's not quick and easy. This is not a phone order. This is not an internet order for new clothes from wherever you go online. This is not Coles online food that's delivered in the morning. It's not easily delivered. Atonement for sin costs a life. Atonement is carefully and deliberately delivered and we dare not be dismissive about our sin. Do you get that? Please, friends, do you get that? We dare not be dismissive of sin if this is right. If this is right, then I'm worried. Because I say to myself, John, it's only a little sin. It wasn't a gross sin. You ever said that to yourself? You ever said, oh, it's okay, I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm not like a murderer. Look, it's not as if I'm one of the perps on SVU. I'm not like that. I, I didn't set out to sin. Have you ever said, I actually can't help that because it's my personality and you've got to give permission for me to be me? But God's word says, no. All sin, each sin is awful. God's, God's word says that sin pollutes the pond. Proverbs 25, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Giving way to wickedness is like polluting the well. It's like a stain. Book of Isaiah says it's a stain. Isaiah 59 says it, it separates you from God. So it's a pollution, it's a stain and it separates you from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from God. So that's, that's number one lesson. You'd be going away from the tent of meeting with that stuff in your nostrils and you'd be thinking, man, Sin is horrendous if that's what it takes and therefore it needs to be dealt with and you'd be walking away saying my sin needs to be dealt with. But then secondly, don't you want the but now, the but secondly, what else does it remind the Old Testament faithful worshipper? It reminds us of the greatness of of God's mercy. Forgiveness comes by mercy. Mercy is expressed when God accepts the sprinkled blood instead of your life. And that means that I can, I can walk with a free conscience. I can, that means I can walk away from this sacrifice back into life. That means I'm not consumed by God's wrath, but I'm mercifully saved from God's wrath. This reeks of mercy that God can restore the sinner who comes through the blood of a sacrifice. 
Mercy is given. Remember where we started, my opening big picture comments? Mercy is for all. Mercy is for those who can't afford a sacrifice. God says, I'll provide you with one. All sin, every sin, every person, no matter your standing in the congregation, every person, no matter your standing in the community, can come and receive mercy. This reeks of mercy because God relieves the worshipper. Sure, there's this grave sacrifice, but where does the worshipper go? Does he stay looking at the sacrifice? Where does the worshipper go? He goes back home, free, relieved, filled with the love of God. He goes back home. The animal was consumed, but the worshipper is not consumed. That's mercy. There's, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. And it's even outside the camp. Did you notice that? Mercy is even found outside the camp, outside the place where you'd normally expect to find mercy. Numbers chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 tells us that outside the camp is where the unclean lived and the sick and especially the leprous were banished. Do you remember that? Numbers chapter 5. Can you imagine the disgrace of being diseased and sick? And in our Christian mercy, we send you to hospital. Uh, what was offered to you in Jerusalem was, here's a doona and a bottle of spring water and then you're pushed out the gate and you live out there. But wait a minute. That's where the sacrifice extends to. Even where, you see, God is present even there outside the city walls where it's not quite so safe, where it's not quite so secure. God's provision of atonement is completed outside. So two twin abiding lessons that we would learn as an Old Testament worshipper. The gravity of sin, unmistakable, and the greatness of mercy, the gravity of sin and the greatness of mercy. And don't we need those? Don't we need to understand as much as we can about our God? This reminds us of the nature and character of God. It reminds us that uh, we just don't only talk and love the mercy of God, but we also need to talk and love the justice of God. So, that's what the Old Testament faithful would learn, that uh, sin's very grave (coughs) and mercy's very great. (coughs) Sin's very grave and mercy's very great. Now, last time I checked, Chris, um, there's no Old Testament worshippers here this morning. So no one's old enough to have lived in these days and seen this. So before I close, I need to say, well, how does this apply to St Stephen, Surrey Hills and to ourselves? You see, and it does. So let me, let me ask the opening question of this closure. Do you need forgiveness this morning? Is that you? 
In your heart, you don't answer anybody else, do you need forgiveness? Do you need cleansing before God? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, whether a known sin or an unintentional sin, your offence against God? Do you hear the gravity of that sin? Do you know your heart is like, a, is like the proverbial polluted pond? Where do you go? Where do you go today? Well, the New Testament has a ready-made application, doesn't it? That's what we read from Hebrews 9. Do you remember that reading from Hebrews 9? Because it says in verse 11, Hebrews 9:11, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. Is it possible on the visuals to put up the Bible reading from Hebrews 9? If it is, that would be great. If it can't be done, that's all right. Hebrews 9 verse 12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Do you see the point in verse 12? What's verse 12 saying? No more, no more goats, no more calves, no more choosing the best from our herd. Why? Because the best offering's been offered. So you don't go out to your paddock and choose the best lamb. Christ says, choose me. Choose me. My blood has been sprinkled in the most holy place, that is in heaven, once and for all. And I've obtained eternal redemption is what Christ is saying. Are you troubled by sin this morning? Turn to the true high priest. Ah, Aaron and his boys did a good job. Well, Nadab and Abihu didn't. But, but Aaron and his other boys, they're all right as priests. But they're just a foreshadow, a poor imitator of Christ's work. See the Hebrews passage? Never mind about Aaron and his boys. Let me tell you about the great high priest who's, who's soared into the heavens. And it's his blood that will make you clean. That's the application, isn't it? His blood will make you clean. And then the end of that passage, flick through to the next slide, the end of the passage, and then it says that your conscience is free to serve. Do you feel that, verse 14? To cleanse our conscience from acts that otherwise would have led to death so that you can serve the living God. You may go out from our, our Sunday worship into the world and the week with a clean conscience ready to serve the living God. Is that you? Are you ready to get up and go? <laughs> Thank you. Why can you say that? Because... Thank you, sister because you've been sprinkled clean by the perfect sacrifice 
And I want to finally close with a reflection from the last reading from Mark's Gospel. And I wondered if you noticed verse 20 or whether it just slipped by us. Ah, sorry. Uh, The last sentence of verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes on him. And what's the next sentence say? Can we read it together? Then they led him out to crucify him. They led him out. See that little word? Three letters, out. There's a picture. Here's the loving Saviour nailed to a cross where? Not in the holy safety of, of beautiful Jerusalem, not in the sanctuary of, 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 of a tent of meeting, but outside the camp. That's where the green hill was, outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. Jesus suffered outside the wall in order to bring you and I in. And look, you and I, we, you might feel today that you're a bit on the outer, You're not sort of in the centre of hubbub of life and activity of jobs and status and standing and maybe you think that nobody actually notices you. You're a bit on the margin. That's okay. Jesus says, come to me because I'm outside the camp. Go to him. On the fringe? Great. That's where Jesus is. You're not all that popular? Fantastic. That's where Jesus is. You're just on the margins. That's where Jesus is. Hebrews 13 says, go to him outside the camp. That's where they took him, outside the camp. That's where the final Levitical chapter 4 sacrifice ended up, outside the camp. That's where Jesus is and he will meet you. Whatever station you are in life, whatever stage of life, however you're struggling, however marginalised you feel, Christ meets you right there. You don't have to become more centralised first to meet Christ. Christ meets you at the margins. When you don't feel worthy, Christ loves meeting unworthy people like the, the children's talk, the rich man. I don't know where he's gone, but God, God, God doesn't single out famous and rich people and just save them. He can save famous and rich people. But, but, but Christ meets those who just do not feel worthy, who feel nothing, who feel has-beens. Any has-beens here today? I'm a has-been. I've lived far too long and I'm too tired and I'm too marginalised. I just feel a, a, a struggling plodder. I can't do much in life but I can plod. But even when I was a young lad, here in this suburb, a young lad struggling all over the shop, not knowing what life was about, not knowing anything of what I was to do, God met me. Christ met me when I was struggling. So if you're struggling today, 
Hallelujah. Great. Because it's right there. Right there. Christ meets you outside the camp. Flee to him. Don't bring anything. Remember? Final word, I promise. Don't bring anything to meet Christ. Do not look for the best lamb in the paddock. Do not bring the best suit. Bring nothing. There's nothing that you can bring that will restore your relationship to God. What do I choose to bring? Do I choose to bring a better heart? Do I choose to bring a better mind? Do I choose to bring my goods and chattels? No, no, no. Don't bring anything. Christ says, choose me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this brief glimpse of your word. And we don't for a moment imagine that we understand. But we understand this much. But our sin muddies the pond. And your love is greater than the depth of our sin. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.